This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you begin by telling me who you are, where you're speaking from, and what you are currently working on? Okay, I'm Sarah Wigglesworth, Director of the Eponymous Practice, and I'm actually sitting in my office as normal because it's adjacent to my home. So I've got a very good setup here um, that anticipated the COVID. (laughs) We're currently working on a range of projects from uh, a community building about to finish, that's in Highbury nearby. We are working, uh, we've just finished a private house for uh, three generations of the same family. We're doing a series of retrofit projects and we're designing a housing scheme, a new one, uh, uh, sort of zero carbon in South Yorkshire. And we're doing another private house for somebody. So quite a range of different things, mainly based around housing at the moment. You mentioned your office house setup in some way sort of unconsciously preempted the uh, the lockdown situation. I wanted to ask about that. How do you separate work and, and life? How do you go about you know, making sense of what for some people is a very sharp separation, but when it's in the same building, uh, the assumption is it's it's more of a blurred existence? I think there are two kind of answers to that. I mean, one is mentally, how do you leave it behind and sort of go and do something else and don't let it get into your brain while you're not actually working. But actually, I don't really think that happens. And I think that when we were designing Stock Orchard Street house and office, that was actually part of the agenda, the sense that the division between life and work is not as sharp as, let's say, capitalism or industrialization would lead you to believe, especially um, in a service industry or an industry like ours, making things and being creative. And and I think that the way that we designed this sort of reflected that. I mean, the dining table being this kind of edge, very blurred boundary in a way, physical space between the life of the house and the life of the office. And um, and I personally, in my own life, I never really forget one or another. And so in a way, I think the buildings are a reflection of that. I, having said that, I mean, I think of course, space is a way in which you can detach yourself, but in many ways, I think the mental discipline is equally as important. And I've just got used to over the period of years living with my work and working with my in my life, um, you know, be it gardening, cooking, cleaning, you know, whatever it is, and making life work, as it were, life admin. And, you know, I think we need to get a bit more back into that mode, because really, I think that's more realistic, actually, as we're all beginning to find. Just another question about about your own house, because I, I've been reading about how it's been undergoing a sort of process of renovation, but of sort of tweaking and you know reflecting on what has worked, what needs upgrading, uh, which I think is is really fascinating because it seems to point towards a rather different way of thinking about architecture or or about building, of not as something that is completed then handed over, that's it, but as as an ongoing process. Yes, I definitely feel that about architecture. 
And I think it is sort of embedded in the way that we wanted to think about this building as a sort of ever evolving research project. But then it became very real when we ran out of money and we didn't actually even complete the building when we moved in. And we've been making subsequent amendments and refinements. Like for example, we hadn't decked the tower out at all. It was completely empty when we moved in and we've subsequently put in staircase and put the rooms in and insulation and all the rest of it. And we've done the garden and we've done various tweaks to all sorts of bits of it ever since. So it's been this sort of rolling evolution in a way. And I think that, um, you know, you find out things when you begin to occupy a place that you didn't really anticipate when you moved in. And you that makes you want to think of adjustments and making it even better. And so um, I mean, after 20 years of occupation with all the knowledge that we had from that, uh, we decided to do a retrofit and it was partly an eco retrofit to improve it. But it was also sort of anticipating the next 20 years, like how could this dwelling that we have grown to really love and enjoy um, suit us as we grow older, you know, because in 20 years, I'm going to be 80 something. And we just wanted to make sure that it was safe and workable for us. And that we got to understand and know how to use all the, the new kit that we put in um, before we, you know, found that very difficult. But I mean, the main thing is, I guess, sort of in the spirit of this ever-evolving research project, with the 20 years of post-occupancy evaluation, you know, we were able to kind of target areas which we wanted to change. But the main thing is, I guess, that, you know, software's really improved. So predictive modeling of buildings has, has, has made it really possible to analyze what we were doing. We, we did a number of studies on it to evaluate, you know, energy use and what the U values in the walls are and where the air tightness uh, was failing and things like that. And we've managed to, you know, sort of improve it in as much as we can, given the building wasn't designed to passive house or any of those principles. So, and it's actually been remarkable. It's an amazing change. And you mentioned research a number of times um, in the answer, which is really interesting, that the building beginning partly as a kind of research project, putting that into practice. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that relationship between the work you do as, as an architect, architectural practice, the designing buildings and research what how how do they fit together does one does one issue from another or is it more of a kind of sort of reciprocal relationship well I think of it as being very reciprocal but I mean I wouldn't be dogmatic about how these things kind of interrelate I mean I think I'm really interested in learning through doing and actually think that one of the things about architecture that's quite unique to our discipline is the possibility of um, you know making things happen and then living it and finding out about it and of course with um, improved monitoring equipment and things you know we can find out things about for example energy use and all of that like we did on our retrofit but it's also I'm very interested in sort of what you might call the social side of architecture as well. So how people respond to their environments and how they feel in control of them and you know, enjoy them and what they enjoy and those kinds of things. So, and I think all of that is real grist for the mill in architecture. And so I don't really think that approaching architecture as a sort of set of prescribed moves and um, things that you know what the outcomes are is the best way, because I think that the joy of architecture is in a sense is how it operates in reality. And of course that's very, very unpredictable. 
Having said that, I mean, I also would very much draw a distinction between what I'd call innovation in architecture, which might be all sorts of different kinds of creativity and uh, maybe formal creativity or whatever, and sort of quite what I call the more rigorous side of research, which is that you actually understand what has been done before, you make a kind of hypothetical leap based on that, and then you try it out and you find out whether it works and what you've learned from it. And I think that kind of four-staged thing, and then of course probably the dissemination and sharing of that, is is a, it what distinguishes the idea of research, if, if you like, from just the sort of mere crea- creativity that might go along with architecture normally. And I do think that we, in our practice, we do try and ground that in those principles. In other words, that there's a sort of, there is a rigor to the process and the results might be quite unexpected. So, um, and I think this is perhaps an unappreciated side to the Stock Orchard Street project because the way that a lot of people have taken it is in, is that it's a bit sort of chaotic perhaps. And, you know, there's this sort of riot of different materials and stuff like that, but actually the choices that we made were very rigorous. They were about, you know, what is a recycled material? What is a, um, a, a material that could be recycled? What is a, a sort of waste product what is a low embodied carbon product and and use only those things so if that means a strange combination of elements so be it because the rigor of the process is what determines it that's the kind of thing that i think we're really interested in exploring and i wanted to ask about sustainability in, in particular uh, because it seems with your work that it, yes, it is about energy performance. It's about carbon footprint. It's about the sort of the technical side, the quantifiable side, but there's also a kind of a social sustainability as well. You know, thinking of something like the primary school you did in Wakefield, Sandor Magna Primary School, which is full of all sorts of amazingly clever, sustainable features. But at the heart of it is this incredibly rich and and quite sort of joyful design and it always seems to me that the technical side counts for very little without that latter aspect. I think that's often really overlooked and people just sort of focus more on the technical side but I think that ultimately I'm really interested in how people value their buildings because I think that's actually a part of the sustainability. I mean if they don't care about them and they and they feel alienated from them then they're not going to um, look after them and they they won't be able to um, as it were use them properly work with them properly like have an openable window or something I think there's nothing more disempowering than a, a building management system that you know opens and closes the flaps for you all day long and so you feel like you don't have any power over your own environment I think those things are really important but I also think often as architects we're a bit guilty of not really seeing the opportunities that might lie uh, maybe formally or expressively in a sort of rigorous thinking about an environment and the technical side of things. So that Sandal Magnus forms, a lot of them come from thinking about, you know, ventilation and wind towers and things like that. But they're also about a very strong sensory environment for children as a place of learning. And I think with all of these things, none of it is mutually exclusive. You know, it's a it's all a rich palette that uh, we can use if we, you know, bother to try and I don't really make any apology for that, especially in a building for kids like that, because I think you're trying to awaken their curiosity and interest. And so the buildings themselves actually play a role in that. You know, they're not all about discipline and punish. They're actually about trying to encourage curiosity and learning through every aspect of your brain. In terms of creating a building that, that can achieve that, 
engagement with with the end user the children in this example the teachers as well the parents the whole or the wider community is fundamental to that and that's that's a key part of of how you work could you talk a little bit about that how you go about beginning these conversations yeah i mean i think it's absolutely critical and i think it's one of the things that i enjoy about working in schools or have enjoyed working in schools is that you do get to work with the people who are going to be using your building, who have insights into their curriculum and pedagogy. And that's very different from, say, providing speculative housing where you don't really know how people are going to live and you may not really understand the kinship structures or gender relations or whatever of the of the communities that are going to be living in your buildings. In fact, I think, um, I mean, one sad thing is that under kind of current government's policies, you know, we're designing sort of standardised and speculative schools that don't really have a user at all. And I think it's very, very difficult to design a school like that. You, you're going to provide something that's not very rich. But I mean, what we do is we, you know, we go in and we talk to as many people as we can from the children to the staff, to the caretaker, to the local authority, to whoever is maintaining the grounds, you know, whatever it is. And we try and garner their experience of what it is to uh, live, work and sort of um, manage the place. And I think it's very, very important that you bring people with you on this journey because they need to feel ownership over it. They need to feel it's important to them and that they've had an input in what the result is. And you need to understand what their knowledge of their place is. You know, I mean, we're there for a very short period of time, but these, you know, the legacy we leave for others is, is a huge issue. And we need to take that on board right from the word go and make sure that it's workable for them. And I think that what I've learned over the course of, you know, working in schools over many years is I would argue that you need to keep it really simple because a caretaker is typically somebody who will not have a physics degree and understand how to use a complex building management system, you know? And so you need to make it capable for them to manage and to run on, on their own when you're not there. So, you know, I think it needs to work for them. And if it comes down to just fabric first approach, openable windows, radiators and controls, like thermostats that you can turn on and off, you can see the figures and you know what you're doing, so be it. That's fine. If they can manage it, it's really important to do that. You're part of the uh, the Part W Collective, and I think throughout your career, you've been involved in furthering the position and opportunities for women in the architectural profession. I wanted to ask like, what what you see has changed over that time, um, hopefully for the better, and also what you think are the, the key battles to, still to be fought and the spheres in which they need to be fought, whether they're professional, institutional or personal. To take the first one, well, I mean, I, sp- I suppose I first got interested in this topic way back in the early 90s. And I think looking back, I see that every generation sort of reinvents the topic and, you know, takes it on board in their own manner. And that's all really good. I think at that point in my life, which was sort of maybe mid-late 30s, I was not as aware as I should have been about the pioneers who came before us that we whose shoulders we stood on. And I think that's partly because, you know, women's contribution in architecture has largely been um, undocumented and not really 
celebrated enough. So I think one of the things we need to do is to recover history, the history of women's contribution to architecture, which has been largely ignored. And actually, that's something that Part W is trying to do at the moment by building up a kind of uh, database of women and to do Wikipedia articles, that kind of thing, make a systematic study and research into what people are doing now in, in the industry so that we begin to build up a body of knowledge that you can access. I think over the years then, I mean, it's sort of the gender issue sort of disappeared, but it's res- it's been resurgent recently with the Black Lives Matter affair, with the uh, Me Too issues and so forth. And I think a new generation has suddenly sort of picked up on that. And there does seem to be quite a groundswell of people who are now really interested in that topic. And I think I, I have a lot of hope that the younger generation is um, going to be driving the agenda forward because there's much there's many more you know organs that are sort of looking at this issue now and not going to put up with the status quo but i think the aj uh surveys of women in architecture are pretty depressing reading because they still show a massive gender pay gap they show sort of systemic prejudice in the workplace i think academia is not probably not quite as bad as out there in practice. I think it's a more benign environment for women. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, schools of architecture are are becoming stronger places for women to build a career. But I think practice is still pretty bad and a lot of practices need to really get their act together. But I'm not into tokenism either because I think um, places like the GLA are making very big strides to try and include diversity um, in their bids. But if it's um, used as a very blunt instrument and simply excludes people who can't, who, who, because they don't understand the barriers for minority practices to get into the mainstream, then it's not very helpful. So it's quite a nuanced conversation. And I think it's still very much at its infancy and sort of ongoing. But I'm hopeful that at least now it's not a shameful thing to talk about. It's very definitely on the agenda and hopefully will not go away again. One of the most high profile aspects of the Part W campaign is for um, more women to win the uh, RIBA Royal Gold Medal. Yeah. Only Zaha uh, had won it uh, this year. Grafton Architects won it. Denise Scott Brown was, you know, the notable absentee. Thinking about the Pritzker Prize, uh, where infamously it was awarded just to Venturi and, and not to Denise. And I, and I was thinking, while researching this, the, the essay that, that Denise wrote, Room at the Top, Sexism and the Star System in Architecture, which she wrote in the 70s, but was actually only published in the 80s, where she reflects on that, that relationship between the star system and the way that certain attributes are valorized in architecture and gender. And thinking of that, I, I was wondering about that, about the campaign. Should we be campaigning for more women to win the Royal Gold Medal? Or should we actually be saying, well, we need other ways of valuing people's contribution to architecture? That Pritzker Prize, these very grand medals, they entrench this highly gendered yeah. star system. So actually, do we need to be sort of taking them down and, and thinking yeah. again about how we recognize people absolutely we do yeah i'm completely yes i'm with that all together i think you've got to see it as sort of small steps towards a revolution and we can't do everything overnight and also we're trying to change perceptions which are quite difficult to dislodge you know having said that i think um 
you know, there are some prizes like the McEwen Prize recently set up by Reba Journal to try and valorize different kinds of things. But I think the old sort of patriarchal models are very, very hard to shift. And there are a lot of things that need unpacking from that. For example, this idea that it goes to a single individual, you know, and that's based on this modernist idea of that sort of Howard Rourkean notion of the sort of genius individual. Well, I think we really need to get away from that as an idea. So that's a very big underpinning of what goes on. It's also about juries and the kind of um, things that they value. And even, you know, Reba awards are all about the aesthetics. And if you try and talk about social value, then, you know, you, you get ignored and that gets very undermined. So, you know, I think there are lots of things underneath this as, as baggage. And personally, I think, I think there, those kinds of things are really outdated, actually, and don't recognize the sort of depth and breadth of the enterprise in making or contributing to the architectural discipline. And, you know, it's very rare for an academic to win one of those prizes, for example. In fact, I think it probably has never happened unless you're a practitioner as well as an academic. So I think the whole edifice probably really needs deconstructing altogether. But I think that's a very long way away. And I think, you know, you have to target your critique and in the current climate, I think what we were trying to say was all of these people were overlooked and none of them were thought about when people were putting together these lists and their histories do need to be recovered. Because if people don't even know about these women, then they won't even they won't get anywhere and they won't get the work that gives them the kind of opportunities. So this thing runs very, very deep. There's a lot of issues that are intertwined in all of this, all of which need to get deconstructed to think about valorizing contributions in a very different way. You've got an extensive body of work, but I wanted to ask if there was one building type that you haven't designed that you would like the opportunity to do, or perhaps if that's too specific a question, more broadly, what makes an ideal project for you to work on? Yeah, I don't really feel that there's a typology that I want to work on. But what I like doing is working with really ambitious people who've got something that they think we could add to where it's intellectually challenging and potentially technically challenging. And, you know, it'd be great to do something that's low energy and all that, because that would build on our existing knowledge. And I'm really interested in that. And actually, I think that's it's absolutely essential. I mean, in a way, one shouldn't really even be mentioning it because it should be given, but unfortunately it isn't given at the moment. And, you know, work with people who are really on our side in terms of our consultant group and you know so that really that we're not undermined by anyone in our team and we're all working towards the same goal and I suppose I mean you know in our past portfolio perhaps the most relevant projects on those lines are Sandal Magnus School and are something like the Siobhan Davies Studios where Siobhan Davies was so ambitious although on, on a shoestring and with an existing building and all of those things you know but in a way those are the ingredients which give you so much to work with because it's a really rich thing to start with. So I'm completely Catholic about what it might be, but if all those ingredients can come together, I'd retire happy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah Wigglesworth, for contributing to 20 by 20. That was a pleasure. Thank you for asking me.
You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating, and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.